Welcome to Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. Today I'll be joined by Vanessa Cunha, a teacher from Anaheim, California, and today we'll be discussing California Superintendent model plans for opening up the schools as well as social injustice in the classroom. So without further ado, let's jump right in. jump right in with our first guest, Vanessa Cunha. A little bit about Vanessa. She is a bachelor's in liberal studies. She has a dual credential with multiple subjects and sped Montsevier. She has a Bila in Spanish with a supplementary in social science, and she has been in the classroom for four years. So Vanessa, why did you choose teaching? Well, as you mentioned, I've been in a classroom for four years. The reason I actually chose education, I think it started when I was a little girl. I used to play teacher with my dolls and I always enjoyed it. Um, when I hit sixth grade, um, my my sixth grade teacher told me, oh, you can become a teacher by going to college. And that's what started to get me into thinking about teaching. I had a really great experience with my teachers um, starting in the sixth grade. She, she, um, she really introduced me to just love for reading. She showed me how teaching is a passion and then I entered junior high and high school and I had great teachers that taught me a lot about music, um, teachers in Spanish that just taught me literature. Uh, and I really just fell in love with my culture. My English teachers showed me more about reading. And I got the opportunity to actually be a teacher assistant for a special education class. And that is when I got into the field of special education. I've been, after high school, I began to volunteer in my parish as a catechist. I taught second and fifth grade and I actually set up the first special education class in the parish in coordination with the director of faith formation and I I also applied for a job at a junior high and I worked as an avid tutor as well for four years as well and I just um work when um I did tutorial groups with the students I helped them with presentations that then they went to present at the Nixon library and competed against other junior high and high schools and lastly my my experience in the classroom as a student teacher I was a student teacher in a dual immersion classroom um in first grade and in a special education classroom for K through second Wow. Sounds like you're ready to retire then. <laughs> no, no. I have so much to learn still. I'm just getting started and I'm so excited. So if I had a DeLorean time machine and you got in the car with me, what place or time caused you to want to be a teacher? I got to say it was, it started in sixth grade. Um, I actually immigrated here from Mexico. Um, I was an English language learner for what, two, probably two, three years. Um, and I remember always being sent to a to two lower grades below what I was in. So I was a third grader. I was sent to first grade and then fourth, I was in second grade, fifth to third grade. It wasn't until I was in sixth grade that my teacher, instead of sending me below to, a, to another grade level to learn English, she provided me the proper differentiation, which is what I know it is now and the proper support for me to learn English. And that's when I actually tested out of being an English language learner, became a standard um, English learner. And that's when I be- began to enjoy school. Um, and I felt that I wasn't alone anymore. And I didn't feel like the weird girl, as some people used to call me, because I didn't speak English. 
such a great story. I'm sure your parents are really proud of you. And I'm proud of you too. Fun fact, Vanessa and I were in the same credential program and she is one of the best teachers. Now, California State Superintendent Tony Thurman released the model guidelines for the four potential models of schools reopening again. The first one is the two-day rotation blended learning model. And this would be split up with lower grades and upper grades. So for example, K through third could attend school Monday, Wednesday, and fourth through sixth could attend Tuesday, Thursday. And everyone does distance learning on Friday. Yes. So that is the first option. Uh, the second option, the, the California superintendent release was an A-B week blended learning model. And what this means is that half of the students across all grade levels will attend school Monday to Thursday on one week. And then the other half will attend the following week. And so for dawn. So for example, we can have K through second attend one week and then third through, through six will attend the following week. Um, and as the model, as a two-day rotation blended learning model, student, um, Fridays will continue to be distance learning for all students. Thank you. And the third model is the looping structure where younger students may stay with the same teacher for multiple grades and in a cohort. Another fun fact, Vanessa and I are in a cohort together for our credential program. You really do um, build great relationships being in a cohort um, class or group. That's from my experience. I mean, Oliver and I are still great friends here. Um, so the fourth guideline that we have, or that the superintendent um, suggested, is an early, late, staggered schedule. Um, so this means is that different grades will start at different times, and it'll be like an a.m., p.m. rotation. Um, and that will be to avoid having too many people in the same place at once. So you can have kinder start maybe early, go from 8 to 12. And then you'll have K through 2nd. I mean, K through 2nd will start like 8 through 12. And then 3rd through 6 will start like 12 to 3 or something like that. Um, and it'll just depend on what the schools choose if they decide to do staggered schedule times. Now that we went over all four models, let's look at the pros and cons of each one. Starting with the first one, the two-day rotation blended learning model. Now, if I compare this one to the AB week blended learning model, two main differences. First main difference is that the two-day rotation blended learning model, you see the same students every week. But... Second difference is you only see them twice a week as opposed to four days a week with the blended learning model. Vanessa, what are one of the cons you see for this one? Uh, one of the cons um, that we um, can discuss about the two-day rotation blended learning model is that as students begin to get more comfortable with each other, uh, social distance can lessen. Um, for example, like, you know, as you begin to see somebody more and more, um, students, you know, they just want to talk to their friends. They just want to be social. So that's um, something that could probably occur that social distance will lessen as, you know, students see each other more over an AB week blended learning model where students will see each other once every other week and they'll continue to keep those social 
guidelines, they're a little more fresh in their head because they don't see their classmates as much. Half day. Instead of it being a social distance day or a distance learning day, just make it a half day. And that way the kids still go to school every single day. Now, it might get a little bit tricky or confusing um, trying to figure out the time that you go on Friday. But after two or three weeks, the students and the parents, the family should get used to the schedule. Yeah, well, what I was thinking is what about students who are more at risk or like the lower grade students who are learning how to read and they're learning basic um, math skills. Um, they need more intervention, more, more um, support from the teacher on a daily basis. And if they're only seeing their teacher once every other week, um, within the week that students don't see the teacher in person, um, what happens to the students, um, to the students learning. And this is when parents, um, this is when parent support really comes in, like teachers and parents are going to have to just have that great communication to make sure that the students are continuing on their learning. They're um, working on those greeting skills or math skills, writing skills, any other skills that they're working. Um, so this is, um, you know, I think the parent um, communication and support in student education is going to have to increase in school and are doing the distance learning how can we help those students keep up to up to date up to track with all the lessons that the teacher's giving how do we make sure they retain that information i wouldn't say maybe forget but they wouldn't get the pr as much practice as they need um so their their skills will not be um maybe as high as, as a students who will be seeing at least that will go to school every week, even if it's two or three times a week. Um, in an AV model too, the, um, the week the students are not going to school is going to be all remote learning. And that's when students, I mean, teachers are going to have to be even more creative about how to provide all the content, all the instruction that will usually be done in, in the classroom. And that's something that still as teachers, we are still trying to figure out how to do remote learning. It's still a new concept to, to many of us. My district chose to go with this model, the AB week learning model. I would plan as much hands-on activity as I could for the days that the students are in class. Now, I know the stuff will be repeated. So, for example, if I teach um, the rock cycle on week one, I have to teach the rock cycle again on week two for the students that had week one off. So essentially, I'm going to be teaching the same thing twice. And then Friday for me, I would make it an assessment day with the distance learning or math in the manipulatives using really uh, as much hands-on because the next week the students are going to be online. Yes, that is, that's true. That is a great, um, that's a great way to look at the AB um, week learning um, blended model, which I really like that you mentioned that. Now what happens with the families that cannot get, a whole week off consistently. First week of September, they might be able to get that off. 
And then they jump over to the third week because the second week the students are in school, but then jump to the third week. Parents cannot get that week off. And then again and again and again. What happens then? Is this a situation where some child care services come in play? Perhaps the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA? Yes, we did. We did. Um, we did talk about that. How some parents depend on school, um, so that their the their children are in in a way they're like also being taken care of while the parents are out at work. Um, and we talked about um how can Boys and Girls Club provide more services to the students? Um, like having half days where students can go and be in the playground while maybe some of their siblings too are in school because what if we have um, siblings that are third through six and then they have a sibling who is in like a K through second they're going to be going to school on a different um, day as well or different um, and that actually applies to the first and second model um, you know what are parents going to do if their children are in different grades um, and we talked about Boys and Girls Club, YMCA, different school programs and how, how are schools going to implement these, um, as well as um, the role that maybe substitute teachers are going to play in, um, in education now. These child care provider services is if I had a child that was in first grade or a child in any lower grade, and then I had a child in an upper grade, like fifth grade, attending the same school. And if I cannot get those weeks off, because I don't want to have to choose between my child or between my children. I don't have to choose between taking X week off to take care of my younger child or X week to take care of my older child. What I would do is maybe use these YMCA and Boys and Girls Club to have both my children at the school at the same time. My younger child would be having the week of instruction while my older child would be doing some kind of homework help, independent study, maybe recreational activities. And I think there's going to be some problems that rise if you make exceptions. Well, I don't, I think if you make an exception for once, then you're going to have to make an exception for everyone else. Um, and then what about the teacher of the student who's a fifth grader? You know, she's going to be required to go on, 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 um, on her assigned date. So I think it's really tricky when you make, um, exceptions. Um, I'm just trying to think of, um, an alternative for this. Can you think of any right now? Yes, I have a solution and it only works if school has the resources for it. But basically what I would do is send both my children, so the lower grade and upper grade child, send them to the school. And I think the buses situation, the bus situation, they might arrive at slightly different times, but they would be in school for the majority of the time. And basically what would happen is my younger child would be having their instruction and the older child would be through any recreational child care provider and they would take breaks in between hopefully and at the end of the school day whether it's a half day or a full-on day I get to have both children come home 
Again, they might be on separate buses. There might be a slight delay, 30 minutes or an hour. But for the most part, they are at school at the same time and they leave school at the same time. Again, this can only work if there's enough space at the school. Not all schools have a field. Not all schools have a black dome. Not all schools have extra rooms for these after-school providers. That's true. And then um, we also talked about how sometimes um, parents might want to maybe, you know, take advantage of the services, you know, and send the students to YM or to a YMCA program or Boys and Girls Club um, so that the students are able to maybe get out of the house for a little bit. Um, so what about when students don't actually need these services? Um, how do you control all of that? And I think that's a question that um, the, uh, everyone at the district level and state level has to um, have into consideration and really know how you're going to enroll students in Boys and Girls Club, YMCA or other um, service. Like the idea of taking a bus for a situation like this where you want siblings at some kind of child care services and the bus takes them to another location, maybe strictly dedicated for after school or before school providing. Now, if we look at the looping structure or the cohort style, there's plenty of pros. And one of the pros is staying with the same students for more than one year, getting to know your students. And I believe Vanessa, you had something similar like this growing up in Mexico. Yes, actually, in Mexico, they followed this format. Uh, the, for first and second grade, you have the same teacher. Um, and for me, I personally had a good experience with it um, because I felt like I knew my teacher's expectations. I knew what she wanted. So that is a great pro that you know, you know, the teacher as a student and as the teacher, you know, the student, you know, your students um, strengths and where the student struggles with. Um, and you can provide a lot more support sometimes in, our, in that way. But I know I was talking to Oliver too, and we we're talking about how sometimes um, teachers, um, because they know the student already, they may not start to consider other instructional strategies that might work for the student. Um, you want to add to that, Albert? Having the same group of students for more than one year, particularly sped months of year, and the reason behind this is you want to work with the long and short term goals of that student. And because you have that student for more than one year, you can really tailor the lesson, the content of working on their goals. You can really tailor everything to best fit the needs of that child. Um, so sometimes teachers, um, you know, towards the end of the year, um, they can, you know, we use the term lacy in quotation marks. You know, the teachers can't probably get lazy because they know they're going to have the student for the for next year. So maybe they'll just not focus on certain content areas as much as they should because they're saying, oh, we'll teach the students next year. But then um, the question I ask myself, isn't this actually hurting the student because they're already going to be behind in second grade because they didn't get the full curriculum in first grade? Um, so that's part of teacher accountability for all schools and teachers is collaboration. Collaborate with your fellow teacher that's in the same grade and collaborate with the teacher that is going to be the next grade. 
if I have the students for fourth and fifth grade, I'm going to be collaborating with the sixth seventh grade teacher. So that way I can best prepare my students for the next teacher. What is it that they need to know for the next grade? Maybe the teacher is saying they should be able to, to type on a Chromebook or on a laptop because I know with this generation, they're so used to touchscreen of a phone, of a tablet. But surprisingly, there are students that do not know how to type. And this is a big factor to take in consideration. Collaboration, collaboration, and collaboration. And um, I actually um going to go back to the point you made about um, SPED. How in special education, teachers uh, do constant progress monitoring. So I think for general, general education teachers with this model, they're going to have to start doing more progress monitoring um, because they're going to be giving that information to the next teacher um, two years later. Um, so I think it's going to be a little slight change maybe for the way general education teachers assess students. Um, that might be, in a way, look more like the way you assess students in special education. Jewel, with this model, if you've seen the students half day and there is no distance learning on Friday, does this mean that the school year gets extended? And I say that because you're supposed to have instruction with the students X amount of hours. I know when the COVID-19 first started, you still had those hours met through Zoom, um, synchronous teaching or student paced teaching. With the half day, I guess you could still do that, but you need to have the students accountable for their attendance, for their homework. What is a good method of the best strategy that a teacher can use to make the most use of their time? A PM teacher, do they arrive early, an hour early to get ready for their lesson? Most teachers arrive early at school so they can prep, so they can get settled down. The AM teacher should have no problem in doing that. But what about the PM teacher? Is that a concern where they can only have X amount of people in the school facility? How early does that PM teacher get? And then same thing with AM teacher. Does the AM teacher leave as soon as it's time for the PM or do they still stay after and work on some things? <laughs> well, I think um, you'll be legally obligated to be there you know it's part of the contract you have to have certain hours um but right now just thinking about how maybe during that time um you you mentioned something about um um extending the school year but i believe that the early stagger schedules could still have some sort of remote learning in there so maybe students only are, are only in school for half a day and then they go home and maybe the teacher will have an option for office hours online office hours and i think that's when student um when the, that's when the teacher will be staying in her classroom after hours or before before hours which will be part of the contract um, and that will be a great way to, for the teachers to plan and 
um, look at assessments, um, do office hours with students, um, collaborate with other teachers. So I think uh, teachers will still be on campus for their for their six, seven hours that they're required to be there. Um, it's just that they'll be less, they'll be spending less time with students, um, but they'll also be doing more remote learning. So it'll be more of a hybrid method. If this was the model that our district chose and I was an AM teacher, if my principal gave me the okay to go home after that and not stay to work on some projects or paperwork or prepping for tomorrow, what I would do is, yeah, I would go home. Now, if I didn't have any duties or obligations like picking up my child or taking care of my dog or loved ones or whatever obligations I had at home waiting for me, if I didn't have those, I think I would stay on campus to be productive Yes, there is more distractions at home for sure because there's more responsibilities at home. Our homes are our place to rest, our place to relax, you know, and there's other people living in our homes too, you know. Um, I don't I don't have children myself, you know, but the teachers that have children, you know, then they have to work work on their, their own children's schedules that are going to school and are receiving education. So it becomes a little more um, tough for even teachers to teach at home because they're just there to have responsibilities. You have to cook, um, you know, have to clean children, pets, etc. So I think being in the environment is personally for me, like Oliver said, I prefer it. I work better. I am able to focus more on, on my job that way. As a principal, would you allow some kind of in-person office hours for all grade levels? If, if they had any questions about homework, if they had any questions about school, or if they just want support, these teachers are going to be filling in kind of like a counselor position. I think, um, you know, um, to have office hours in the classroom, I feel if the district has uh, has an organized method of you know, keeping track of how many students are in the school side at once, you know, and this depends on how big the school is, how many um, students and teachers are in the school side, um, you know, and if teachers can maybe kind of like when you, uh, you schedule conferences with parents, you know, you set up like time slot, time slots and you're like, okay, so um, maybe we'll have, uh, let's say Susie and like Karen come on like, like one day for office hours if they need it. And then like the next day, like Carlos will come, come in, you know, just create a schedule for them. And if there's, if, the, if there's too many people at the district level, then you're going to have to resort to online office hours. Um, you know, cause we have to make sure that, um, our first concern is our safety and we have to make sure that we are all staying safe and just following guidelines. Do you see a big role for, child care provide services, particularly those that are in underfunded school districts, Title I districts, what role are they going to play? Yeah, that is, um, that's a great point that you bring up. And I think right now that's something that we're districts, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to make sure that they receive those services, especially when we're trying to have, um, you know, a certain number of people in the classroom, something else that I was thinking about when you were mentioning that, which, you know, it'll require more work and more organization, but maybe providing boys and girls club services to like a different site, but then this will require 
less transportation, um, more cleaning, more sanitation, but it will also provide more jobs as well. So maybe instead of having boys and girls clubs or YMCA at the school site, you can actually go to an actual center and, you know, figure out there. But then again, not all schools have those resources. Um, but there's something else to consider. With that being said, I think that it's going to be unfortunate that there's some things that are going to be left out. And one of those things is the visual performing arts. And that includes music, art, dance. It's all very unfortunate. And I've seen high schools and colleges try and tackle this. But in the elementary and middle school level, I see it just being abandoned completely. Yeah, many um, students, um, especially at the junior high and high school level, subjects have to share instruments. So this brings up a good question to the districts. Like, okay, I'm going to have to cut off completely out the visual and performing arts or maybe buy more instruments. But instruments are expensive and not all districts can afford it. What about PE? How does PE play a role in the school environment? Could you have PE on an outside area like a grass top or blacktop and just have contactless sports or activities? And think about PE for SPED as well. They still have their adapted PE services. And then libraries. As far as libraries, I don't think schools are going to go the route where they have a library open for books for Chekhov. They might have a library open, like a small portion of it for a classroom, but students won't be able, will not be able to check out. And this is unfortunate. I know the alternatives are eBooks and e-magazines, but nothing beats the hard copy of a book in your hand. I know Vanessa, you're sad about this. You're a big uh, book lover. Oh, yes. Um, as I mentioned um, at the beginning of the podcast, I love books. I love to read. I cannot have enough books in my own library. My dream is to just have a room full of books like, you know, Beating the Beast, like the big library. That's my dream. That's, you know, hopefully I can do it. Um, but there's just something about reading books, you know, like physical books um, that I just feel you get more into that just has this great feeling, um, you know, but no more library means that we're going to have to switch to online, online books, you know, ebooks, um, Kindle, Apple books, any other platform for books, um, which I also think it's a little hard to read. I, I personally, my eyes get a lot more tired reading from, from a, from a tablet or from a computer, but, you know, it can be disinfecting all the books that um, that the students touch. So, you know, at least they'll still be reading in books. So that's still a good thing. I know that with today's technology, you can make an ebook with pretty much anything. I have a scanner app on my phone, on my tablet, take a picture, it turns it to the PDF file. You can upload it online. There's services like like Flipsnack where you can make a magazine using the PDF images, and you can even you can even record yourself reading the book, essentially creating an audio book narration. There are services that translate it. There are many things you can do with eBooks, and it's not the end of the world. 
But like I said earlier, I still prefer the hard copy. There are some students that really benefit from that. Another thing that's going to be missing are clubs. And this is very important in high school for myself. When I was in high school, I was in several clubs, the best buddy clubs. And this was used for, besides building great relationships, this was also used for admission into colleges. They want those extracurricular activities, those volunteer hours. And I see an option where you can have these clubs online. There are plenty of colleges and universities that are still having their club meetings. And the way it was done in high school or in middle school, there would be a teacher present, kind of like a moderator, because these meetings would be in the classrooms of the teachers. If this is done online, is this something else the teacher has to be attending or are these just completely student-run clubs and activities? Is there still some kind of oversight by the teachers and is that more hours that they need to put in? Yeah, it takes more time. Um, you know, going back to sports um, and clubs together, I feel those are, I'll, I'll go back to your point about um, teacher monitoring, but sports and clubs just bring this um, culture, like this social, it's so social for students and so important for them to to be with other students, uh, learn how to compete in a, in a compete, just, you know, do friendly competitions. Um, it's a good, and you know, clubs bring fundraisers to schools, teach the students about how to be responsible, how to, um, lead in society. And it's just so important. It's so sad that sports and clubs might, you know, might take a step back for a while. Um, but going back to the clubs about teachers having to be online more than they already are, um, it's tiring to be online. It is tiring to be on Zoom meetings uh, all day, you know, three, three or four Zoom meetings, um, you know, instruction, um, meetings with staff, and then on top of that, club, um, club meetings. And I think also for students, it is very tiring to be on Zoom for, for, for long periods of times. Um, I know for many students, like 30 minutes is already a long time to be on Zoom for instruction. So now you're going to have to do clubs online. And a lot of what clubs do actually is a lot of um, volunteer work, um, going out to the community and fundraising. So all of that is kind of be gone for a little bit too. There's a model that's not mentioned or that wasn't provided. It was thought about earlier, a few weeks. And basically this model would be the students that need the most intervention would be attending school every day. And this also includes K through second because K through second, they need that social interaction. They also need to be taught how to use these tools, the behavior, and also the SPED population as long with I think ELL. It's, it's good. It's a good um, method or a good um you know, to, to think of actually. Um, but then my question is about what about the, the parents who would, you know, maybe they want to cheat the system, you know, to have their, their, their kids attend school every day. That's kind of what I'm wondering about. Um, and so after like second grade, students are going to be doing remote learning for the rest of their life. Um, or until, you know, there's a, until, you know, the pandemic kind of dies down a little. 
Um, and I think this one also, who is like more at risk students? What about like, um, the, gotta think about the socioeconomic, um, the socioeconomic, where are schools located? So some schools have more students at risk than other schools, which means that some schools will need all students to be there, while other schools, maybe they don't need all students to be there. Um, so then it just creates more more loopholes for districts and teachers to figure out. And if you have a school that needs more students to be at there because it's a more at-risk school, then that means you're going to have to go back to one of the previous models. You know, is it going to be an A, 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 B model or a every other day model, loop learning? Um, it's just a lot more to consider than the other methods. And you're actually here depriving students who are not at risk of having this education of kind of interacting with other students. So then you are already like, you know, I don't want to say discriminating, but you are in a way like separating students already. This is where subs, aides, paraeducators and playground supervisors come into play. They would be in the classroom managing the students while the main teacher would be teaching from home. If I'm a teacher who's more vulnerable to getting sick, I would stay at home and this other adult would be just managing the classroom for me that we'd be presenting the information that I'm teaching. I can make videos, PowerPoint, any other interactive presentation. And the teacher or the adult in the classroom would be there to present the information, maybe take good, attendance. It's a good, um, it's a good method. Um, what I'm kind of thinking about is, um, in a way, substitutes are going to be doing, um, you know, they're not going to be doing instruction. It's just classroom management. Um, but then I feel like that they're, they're probably going to wonder why am I, you know, they could probably be doing, they're already doing the teacher job in a way, um, you know, so I wonder if they'll, they'll be okay with this kind of system. Um, you know, if I was a substitute teacher, I, I don't think I would like to kind of go and, you know, just do classroom management. Um, because then in a way I'm also like providing the instruction to the students, um, but it's, I do think it's good to consider for, you know, to make sure that more people have jobs. Um, it gets tricky. It, it does. This area does get very tricky. I'm sure you've heard about teachers getting excess this school year because COVID-19, less enrollment, less teachers that are needed. And... Hopefully this changes for the better because if teachers are getting accessed, what does that say about substitute teachers and how is the substitute teacher going to work for this virtual or distance learning? Well, you can kind of have like a substitute teacher on standby, but another aspect that I want to talk about is food. Students will be encouraged to bring their own food from home. And if students are getting food from the school, the cafeteria, that 
food is still going to be eaten in the classroom. No more food at the benches, the cafeteria. It's all going to be done in the classroom. And as far as distributing that, I don't know if the cafeteria workers are going to be distributing that or maybe an aide or another adult. I'm not sure how that yeah. goes about. And, you know, at least that's, at least they're still having lunch with their with their peers, with their classmates, and you know they'll still be able to, you know, have the social interaction even at six feet, which is you know it's part of having lunch. You just want to have a good time, you know, talk to your peers, your friends, and you know, food in the classroom. Sometimes it happens. I feel like rainy day schedules. You know, there's a little more food in the classroom, so it'll just be like rainy day schedule, but you know. Forever. Yes, it would be like rainy day schedule every day where they stay inside the classroom for recess and lunch. And that is tough. That is really tough. No, yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, like what about the playground? Are students going to be allowed to go on the swings, play on the on the slides, you know, run around, play tag, you know, of course this takes out like basketball and soccer during um, lunch and recess too. But so what are students going to do in their recess and lunch break? Are they just going to kind of play on their own or at social distance kind of way? And the students can't even share any equipment, you know, you can't play handball. Um, you know, you can't pass a ball around because you're already going to be touching the ball. Um, so I feel like they're going to have to be a, um, this new way of playing, you know, or maybe you can play board games and like each person has their own set of, um, of cards or pieces of the game and, you know, just never touch. Um, and this kind of goes with how are you going to incorporate that like running around that exercise at lunch and recess um, unless, you know, new new games are created to uh, have the social distance. When it comes to the playground, I'm thinking contactless sports unless you want to disinfect everything the kids touch, the pole, the slides. But with contactless sports, that can only happen for so long before the kids get bored. Yes. Well, at the same time, I think they would be grateful that they're getting any kind of con- contactless sport. Yeah, because they just want to touch, you know, they just want to touch and hug their friends. And, you know, you know, as humans, we like we like we like physical touch. You know, we like to feel loved. I don't want to get off topic, but I have seen overseas in the, in Europe where they play sports, particularly soccer, like the Bundesliga. And when they score the celebration instead of the usual hugging or a high five it's elbow taps or foot taps could you see something like that in the classroom where a teacher wants to praise a student and how about an elbow tap how about a foot tap i like that actually i was actually out um at an event uh for um a, a, a protest for my parish um in regards to social justice um and it was a lot of like elbow um, elbow greetings and elbow goodbyes. And I like that, you know, you're not, you're being, you're being safe about things. It's an elbow is not an area that you touched a lot with your own hands or you can touch your face. It's kind of hard to touch your elbow to your face anyways. Um, so I like that. And I feel that they'll engage students to be more, you know, willing to come to school and actually enjoy it. What about IEPs? 
I think all IEPs are still going to have to be done online. And you cannot discriminate an IEP case where there's only, say, five individuals over an IEP case that's a high caseload that has 20 individuals, whether that's a social worker, a psychologist, counselor, parents, foster, etc., has maybe a case where it's only a few amount of people involved. I think all of them have to be online in order for it to be fair. Once you start making exceptions for like one group, you kind of start making exceptions for other groups. So it's better to just, you know, have the guidelines that IEPs are going to all be online. Just how IEPs right now, the students have to have their IEP yearly. You know, you don't make an exception for that. They have a triennial every three years. You know, and those are just guidelines that you have to follow. And there's, you know, not really like exceptions because once you start making exceptions, you kind of have to start making them for everybody else. And that defeats the purpose of having guidelines and expectations and rules. Buses. How are buses going to work? The way I view buses are similar to the trams at theme parks like Universal Studios and Disneyland. Buses will be able to control how many students are coming on the school site. They also control the time. If they're too early, I'm assuming they have the bus stay at a block away or loop around to come back. But buses are going to play a huge role in any model. And when I'm thinking about buses, how would you take the students home? Do you have a one-stop location where all the students from this bus, they get dropped off at this other offsite parking lot? Or maybe for the older grades, you still have the students choose the stop they that they need to get off of. I'm not sure how to approach this because, yeah, I see maybe more responsibility with the older students knowing, oh, I get off at this street or, oh, I get off at this street. Or is the bus driver in charge of that? Maybe you want to eliminate all this hassle and just have a one stop drop off and pick up. I think a one-stop picking location, even for the older grades, is better. Um, just because, um, you know, bus drivers are going to... I feel like there might be more students using the bus now, maybe. Um, one-stop makes sure that um, students are in the same area, you know, at once. They kind of see the same people at once, and they're not going to different areas, which... Again, you know, we're trying to make sure that we stay safe and healthy. So if you have multiple locations, that kind of puts more more people at risk um, than just having like one designated area that maybe gets constantly cleaned and having to go clean multiple areas. We need to make sure that bus drivers are doing their part. I've heard sad cases of neglect with bus drivers leaving students on board, and that's very sad. We're going to give an even bigger role to the bus drivers for this, and I'm assuming they're going to be doing um, contactless thermometers to scan the students. And when it comes to seating in the bus, are you for assigned seating where the bus driver chooses the seat for the students? I think assigned seats, um, it's better. It's faster it's easier management and students um you know they're going to the same seat every single time um 
you know, it stops for, oh, maybe one student wanted to sit here one time and then the next day, like, he, he or she wants to sit in a different seat and then there's some argument. So I think it just will make everything go a lot smoother with design seats. You and I both know that aides already do a lot. They play a huge role in the special education classroom. That bond that they form with the students, they teach them those social skills, behavior, emotional, they play a huge role. What role do you see them playing in any of these models? AIDS, you know, in SPED, um, if you're not familiar with um, SPED, um, AIDS do a lot of, um, they work a lot one-on-one with students, especially students at the Montevideo level, students that need to go to the restroom, they need more help with um, you know, maybe cleaning themselves, um, as well as when in the classroom, when they're eating, they can get messy. Some students need help with feeding themselves, especially at the younger um, grade levels. So aides are going to have to either be like each student is going to have to be assigned like a one on one, which, you know, then leads into how many aides are going to be in a classroom at once, which means that you're going to have more people, more than 10 people in the classroom. Um, or how do you go around that AIDS, um, have that social distance with students, um, make sure that they're staying, you know, as sanitary as possible? Do they have to change their gloves every time they work with a different student? Um, or they're only going to work with one student? Um, or are you going to maybe divide up SPED into like half? So on like certain days, you know, even if they're in the same grade level, SPED's going to have to be divided. And like an aide and different aides come for different students as well. You're going to have more aides in the classroom. That's a lot of um, questions to consider that I think still need have no answer yet. What about attendance? How do schools take attendance with these models? Do you count attendance for them being present and the classroom, but not attendance for the week that they're in distance learning, whether it's a week or the day that they're in distance learning. How do you approach attendance like this? Because schools depend on attendance for money. Um, this one have to be a revision too. Um, cause right now the way it works is, you know, the number of students the attend that attend class, the school, that's how funding works. Um, so I think there's going to have to be a revision as to now you make it like, that students attend um, school on the days they're going to be going to school, as well as students attending the remote learning, um, you know, Zoom meetings. Did the student attend a Zoom meeting? Like one, like, you know, depending on how many meetings you had, did student complete the assignments, turn in through remote learning? Um, you know, it's going to have to be a revision. Like students are not going to be, required to be present in the classroom anymore to receive funding you know if as long as they're maybe on a computer doing work i think that's being present in in the learning now given the current climate with all that's going on the protests the black Lives matters police brutality social injustice and you still have kids locked up in cages how does a teacher go about this Teachers are ultimately responsible for what they teach the students, not the textbooks. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, when in instruction, you know, you're not going to only resort to using the textbooks. Um, you know, textbooks are secondary sources. You're going to want to make sure that you bring in other sources, you know, um, that go along with the information from the textbook. And that's actually teaching the students how to analyze different um, media, different kinds of text, you know, whether it's primary sources, secondary sources, um, you know, and it helps them with also understanding bias, you know, why was this written? And then how come we like the view of history is one way, but then another set of individuals see in a different way. And you just start teaching students how to look at different perspectives um, in history. And that's what historians do. And as teachers, we have to teach students how to be historians in the classroom and be able to, you know, use their critical thinking skills, um, you know, and be, be curious about the world and just continue this for their lifelong learning that they don't believe everything that they read right away, you know, that they think about it and um, they make their own decisions about the, the issue and the topics. When it comes to teaching social injustice, you never want to water it down. You want to be honest with the students. Of course, you might change some of the wording that you might use. Um, you know, you can't really say certain words with kindergartens because then he would scare them. But just be aware of how mature the students are. And like I said, don't water it down. They need to know what's going on in the current climate. They need to know what it is and why it is important. Yeah, you have to be honest with the students. You know, they, they know what's going on, especially now that, you know, there's technology at the top of their hands, you know, they have, um, you know, maybe not the lower, the, the younger grades, you know, but once you start hitting like sixth grade and higher, you know, students have access to social media and they, they, they start seeing all this information thrown at them. And a lot of times maybe they, they don't understand all of it. Um, and as teachers, we are responsible for making sure that we provide the resources that students need so that they can, um, you know, think for themselves, judge what the information is coming at them and make decisions and um, that are, you know, they're going to make sure that they are responsible citizens um, and they're not going to like, you know, they're not going to harm others. They're going to, they're going to advocate for others as well, because I think that's what at the end of the day, now we are trying to focus on advocate for others, um, you know, no discrimination anymore. Um, for the younger grades, um, they also, they hear a lot of things from their parents. Their parents, you know, express their concerns and the younger students express their parents' concerns. And it's also important that we as teachers are able to talk to students about this. Students, um, they become worried, you know, they become anxious as well. They just want us to listen to them. And, you know, as teachers too, we provide students with information and knowledge and the tools that they need um, to do their own research. And then the students themselves, they go to their families and educate their, their, their parents or siblings, their grandparents. Um, you know, it's just this circle of like educating each other and students themselves um they educate us as teachers that i have found that i learned something new from my students every day you know i just have to be open to it even with all of this i still think the most important 
factor to take in consideration is a safe classroom environment. You need to make sure that the students feel safe where they can feel comfortable expressing their concerns where maybe they don't know what's going on and then they won't feel ashamed of asking this. And they might ask, what does Black Lives Matter? Why are students locked up in cages? Why is, you know, building a wall? Why is there arguing over impeachment? Students want to know these things and maybe they might not have the resources at home. Maybe it's a topic that they're household doesn't fully understand it's up to teachers to make sure that it's not a taboo students want to know and we are that source of knowledge for them yeah my my mom likes to say that no question is like no no question is dumb um in spanish she tells me like ninguna pregunta es tonta you know meaning that every kind of question we ask we literally ask because we don't know the answer and we want to know more. So we, we shouldn't, um, you know, make other students feel bad for asking questions. An awesome idea that I always like to see implemented is when teachers bring guest speakers. Similar to how you have career day and you bring a firefighter, you bring a hairstylist, a barber, you bring a doctor. It's always neat when students see these people in their community and they ask them, wow, so how did you get that job? What did you do? And these people are experts in their field. And I think it's also important to have something like this with what's going on right now, bringing community members from certain organizations and these advocates will be great resources for the students and for the families, because most of the time when you reach out for guest speakers, these people are active members of the community where the students live. And it's important for them to see the connection. For example, if I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, I might bring someone in from NAACP. If I want to reach out about maybe the gay community, I could also reach out to the Trevor Project, the yes, Gay Straight Alliance. I love that. I love when I loved it when I was in school and I had there was guest speakers that came to talk about issues that they experience or just topics in the community. And I think now with so much technology too, we can become creative, you know. Um and just you know, TED Talks, I think there's a lot of I think um when I was working at the junior high school level um, I, I know teachers, um, that use TED talks to present a lot of topics to students and there's people from all backgrounds in TED talks and you can just provide that information to students as well. And, you know, if you don't have access to like an African American in your area or an Indian American or Asian American or an immigrant, you know, you can always ref just go to a TED talk or some well-trusted, um, area a website that you can um, just grab information from and provide to the students and you know have a discussion about it be open about it um, ask them questions um, ask them what they think and you know just educate each other together Vanessa as this comes to a wrap is there any advice you would give to new teachers or those even thinking about entering the education field even with all the news that's going on right now I mean, um, if somebody would have told me 
you know, when I started, I think the advice I would give teachers or incoming teachers is enjoy the process. Um, enjoy being um, a student teacher. Make sure you collaborate as much as you can with different teachers. Go observe as many teachers as you can. Don't just stay in your classroom with your master teacher. Go out there. Ask your master teacher, you know, if she can give you maybe like one hour of your time and you can go observe a different teacher. And teachers love that. They love to see that you are open to learning new things. Um, make sure that you also, um, you know, talk to administrative level. They love to see you. They love to know. They'd love to have new, like, prospective teachers in mind, um, you know, and staff, um, you know, principals um, have great advice they can give you. They have a lot of resources. They have a lot of experience that they can um, provide you as well. Um, you know, make sure you're friendly to everyone. Talk to the secretary, to the custodian. Um, you know, they are, they are the people that like are the backbone of the, of the school, you know, without the secretary and the custodian, you know, a lot of the things will like kind of fall apart at the school level. So make sure you're always friendly to them, talk to them. They, they help you a lot. They give you a lot of great advice too. Um, so just make sure you're, you're always willing to collaborate with others, are communicative, are friendly, and are always willing to learn new things. I think you would also mention that always give it your best. Always teach like you're getting watched by the principal or the superintendent, because then you say that the principal often visited your classroom while you were student teaching. Yes. You never know when someone's going to come in. I actually had um, the school where um, they're, they're having like a parent, um, a parent tour, actually. And I was student teaching. I remember it was high frequency words. And, you know, I just had like 10 parents come into the classroom, you know, I'll put clipboards. Um, the principal was there and I would just, I just, you know, the students get actually, the students kind of, when they see other people come in, sometimes they'll behave better or sometimes they'll act out. It depends on, on the day as well. Um, but I was just kind of, you know, if you have someone come and observe you, especially as a student teacher, you know, kind of don't ignore them, you know, but like, don't let the students know that you saw them. Just keep going on with your lesson. Always give it your best. Come in every single day, prepare and tell yourself today I'm going to do a great job, you know, because every day you are interviewing. Um, and even as a teacher, you know, I think every day you are just, you're not, maybe you're not interviewing for a job anymore, but you are, um, you are teaching your students, you know, and students see that in you. They, they can tell when you're not feeling your best. They see your enthusiasm and they thrive off that. So I always come to the classroom, giving your best, leave all your personal problems at home. You know, if you didn't sleep well that night, it's okay. Don't let your students know that. Um, when you get home later that day, just take a nap. This has been another episode of Teachers Care Society. I want to say thank you to our guest today, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. And to you, the listeners. We'll see you next time.